A passel of pomp and a circus of circumstance. Historic convention coverage from the Pacifica Radio Archives. Every four years as summer ends, the United States turns its attention to two chosen cities. Why? The two cities play host to the two major political party conventions. But what goes on inside these conventions? And why in recent years has so much gone on outside the convention halls? I'm Amy Goodman. The Pacifica Radio Archives, the nation's largest public radio archive, comb through its vaults in an attempt to learn more about the history of party conventions and to also learn how the Pacifica Radio Network covered these conventions over the years. From the protests in Chicago in 1968 to the shadow conventions in 2000, Pacifica has been there, reporting on the goings-on from its uniquely independent perspective. Pacifica's mission is to bring to the public voices often unheard. Only by hearing voices from as many perspectives as possible is the listener able to fully participate in the national debate. And whether those voices belong to the two major parties, the Communist Party of America, the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, or the Green Party, Pacifica has tried to put a microphone where no other media sources will. Throughout this program, we'll hear archive sound that both gives us an understanding of the mechanisms that run the party conventions and that also show the growth and development of the Pacifica Radio Network. Standing in this convention hall four years ago, I pledge to seek an honorable end to the war in Vietnam. My constituency is the desperate, the damned, the disinherited, the disrespected, and the despised. I stand here as a reporter trying to remain just that, a reporter, cool, calm, and thoroughly collected. But right now, I am in... I see a tax bill and a tax proposal that has my enthusiastic support. You represent the party of your own twisted ideas, my friend. In the last hour, we left off in Chicago, 1968. Violence ensued outside the convention halls, and a great dissatisfaction with the Democratic candidate was felt inside. As a result, the Democratic Party sought to find another way to choose a candidate, one less controversial. And so, under the leadership of George McGovern, a commission came up with the primary election. This would allow a candidate to be determined before anyone ever set foot inside a convention hall. Any controversy would take place miles and miles away. And so, in 1972, in Miami, both the Republicans and the Democrats meet in this city, both using the same primary election system. The third-rate burglary at the Watergate was a little more than two months old when the Republicans meet in Miami to reaffirm President Nixon in August. The convention is carefully and literally scripted. It's designed to give Nixon the best possible exposure, with almost no worries as to whether Nixon and Agnew will be re-elected in November. It is a passel of pomp and a circus of circumstance. Everyone moves through the motions. Nixon and Agnew are nominated. Then Nixon takes the stage and turns to the one issue to which he is sensitive in the field of foreign policy. Standing in this convention hall four years ago, I pledged to seek an honorable end to the war in Vietnam. We have made great progress toward that end. 
We have brought over half a million men home, and more will be coming home. We have ended America's ground combat role. No draftees are being sent to Vietnam. We have reduced our casualties by 98 percent. We've gone the extra mile. In fact, we've gone tens of thousands of miles trying to seek a negotiated settlement of the war. We have offered a ceasefire, a total withdrawal of all American forces, an exchange of all prisoners of war, internationally supervised free elections with the communists participating in the elections and in the supervision. There are things, however, that we have not and that we will not offer. We will never abandon our prisoners of war. Although Nixon felt he was doing well enough on the Vietnam issue, just outside the convention hall, thousands gathered to protest the president, the system, the delegates, and the war. Pacifica reporters Mad Dog Lubowski and Gavin Duffy put together this post-convention show, Bad Moon Over Miami. One of the uh, convention delegates has been uh, sprayed with red paint. There's only one burlesque house, and that's the Gailey Theater in the whole city of Miami Beach. Remember, the Republicans are coming down here. That's right. Do you have any idea why? We have the Queen of Burlesque here, this Tempest Storm. If that can't bring him in, there's nothing we can do or say anything about it. We're here to bring God back to America. How do you want to end the Vietnam War? You think we should just kill them? See, the kill them or be killed. In war, war is war. It was nomination night, and Lester Lannan and his orchestra were swinging and swaying to the strains of Happy Days Are Here Again as the Republican delegates were swooning over the personage of their fearless leader, Richard Nixon, who arrived at the poem Watery-Eyed. Watery-Eyed not so much because he was all choked up with emotion, but because he too was tear-gassed. Yes, happy days were there again, but only inside the convention hall under the glare of the television lights. The scene was much more macabre outside the hall under the glare of the bad moon over Miami. The uh, convention delegates are uh, coming back again, and there's a police escort here to uh, take them in through the demonstrators. The uh, convention delegates are now making their way through the demonstrators with uh, the police escort. Back from you and grandma school Don't come in and tell me this racist. Florida Highway Patrol marching out towards 
17th Street. Someone just threw a, a tear gas canister back at the police and it exploded in uh, their lap. But the police are retaliating and uh, we seem to have a, a pretty sophisticated game of stickball going on. What has happened is uh, demonstrators have uh, been caught at either end of the street. Highway Patrol has cut off Washington Street and uh, making it impossible for demonstrators to move down Washington Street towards the uh, convention hall, the front entrances to the convention hall. The presidency of the Nixon administration will last a little less than two years. In 1974, Vice President Spiro T. Agnew will resign. On August 8, 1974, Richard Nixon will become the first president to resign his office. He will be succeeded by his chosen successor, Gerald R. Ford, the only man to have ever served as both vice president and as president without having been elected to either office. And, uh, once again, a uh, retreat to uh, the public parking facility. Police cars are moving in. Highway patrol. Chasing demonstrators down Washington Avenue. Is Jimmy Carter inevitable? Inevitable. Inevitable. This is the question Pacifica reporter Charles Bell asked on Pacifica station WPFW in early 1976. Bell had followed former Governor Carter on the campaign trail, reporting back his observations of the candidate. Having seen him in action here and in Illinois, after talking with his staff and with members of the ever-increasing press contingent that follows his burgeoning campaign, I think perhaps he may be. A few things, at least, can be said for certain. Carter is a superbly effective campaigner one whose style and whose message are uniquely suited to this particular era in American politics and society. And he is also a politician blessed with that most intangible but most important element in the construction of political success, luck. As inconceivable as it was only months before, it seemed Charles Bell's prediction would come to pass. But what else contributed to Carter's rise? During the previous years, the news had been dominated by controversial court rulings, including the exoneration of Ohio Governor James Rhodes and 27 Ohio National Guardsmen in the shootings of 13 Kent State students in May 1970, as well as two landmark Supreme Court rulings in early 1973, the liberal decision of Roe v. Wade in January and the conservative ruling by six votes to three in March upholding a lower court ruling allowing states to outlaw homosexual acts even if committed in private by consenting adults. According to the New York Times, in early 1976, joblessness in the Big Apple reaches 12.2 percent. The state of Massachusetts unemployment rate hits 11.8 percent. In theaters across the country that spring, reflecting possibly the mood of the country, our Academy Award-nominated films One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Dog Day Afternoon, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, and Taxi Driver, all films about someone bucking the system, doing it differently. And it seemed the country wanted someone different, too. 
In November, Carter takes the election. Despite his contagious optimism, not to mention the fact that Democrats control both the House and the Senate at the time of his election, Carter finds out the rules of insider Washington politics the hard way. Carter promised during the campaign to reduce arms production in the world, but during his presidency, arms production actually went up. Carter placed solar panels on the White House, but what the country remembers of his presidency is the OPEC energy crisis and the long, long lines at the pumps. In 1979, the Soviet Union invades Afghanistan, and of course, Iran takes 66 Americans hostage. By the time 1980 comes around, it seems the country again wants change, this time replacing the independent outsider with someone who represents the influential insider world of money and politics, which would signify an entire decade. Reagan was telling reporters today that he had considered for many long hours former President Ford as a running mate. Reagan says that it was Ford's decision that he could best help the party by not being a candidate but a campaigner. Pacifica reporter Wendell Harper. It was Ford's instinct, says Reagan, not to become involved in a political battle for the presidential ticket. George Bush, on the other hand, is in the somewhat unusual position of having run against Reagan and now having to run with him. His platform seems to have changed quite a bit. He's no longer for the Equal Rights Amendment, as the women's movement had suggested, but he is now for, quote, equal rights. He's also anti-abortion. And Reagan added his own thoughts to the difference between the Equal Rights Amendment and the party's platform plank. You see, there is no disagreement, and anyone who reads that plank in the platform recognizes that there has never been a more specific statement in support of equal rights than is in the Republican platform this year. The only difference of opinion that took place in framing the platform was one of how best to achieve equal rights, whether by statute and law or whether by uh, amendment. But reporters refused to let George Bush off the hook, recalling his denunciations of Reagan's proposed tax cut legislation. Listen, let me uh, enthusiastically support the proposal that Governor Reagan made in terms of taxes and that was introduced, incidentally, in the House by, we don't want to go back into when we were on opposite sides, but by Barbara Conable, the ranking member of the Ways and Means Committee, who strongly now, having failed in his support, but strongly supports Governor Reagan. And you look at that, and I see a tax bill and a tax proposal that has my enthusiastic support. And there are things in there that I strongly urge. And uh, Governor Reagan had emphasis on other things. But the fact that we both recognize that cutting taxes is the way to help people and to stimulate production is the important thing. And please do not try to keep reminding me of differences I had. I want to get there on the same wavelength and go forward together. And that's what I'm going to do. So what remains, it seems, is the question of what the far right will do now that Bush, the nominee they vehemently protested, is the nominee they're perhaps stuck with. But it seems pretty clear that unity is not the order at the moment for the Republican Party. 
For Pacifica, this is Wendell Harper at the Republican National Convention in Detroit. During 1980, Pacifica hit its stride in covering party conventions with booths at both conventions and live coverage throughout each. Mark, we have a tape up on the machine that uh, will change the tone quite a bit, and we think maybe we'd share it with you now. It is Ralph Nader shortly after Three Mile Island having a few words to say about Jimmy Carter. The question is not, can we find other ways to meet our electricity needs? The question is, can enough people in this country roll up their sleeves and go to work as citizens to mobilize an undeniable power that reverberates from California to New York and from Sacramento to Washington? The issue now is political. We were told in 1976 by candidate Jimmy Carter that he would never lie to us and never deceive us. You remember he called atomic energy the last resort. You remember he called, nuke, he called solar energy and conservation of energy the first resort. Well, after watching him for almost two and a half years, can we conclude other than he has deceived us? Has he deceived us? Has he lied to us? You remember what he told us when he raised those words? He said that if he ever deceives us, and if he ever lies to us, he wants us to vote against him. Pacifica's coordinated coverage that year took the listener from inside the convention walls to the likes of independent voices like Ralph Nader, but also to independent candidates like John Anderson who in November will end up garnering nearly 7% of the vote. And in related news, independent presidential candidate John Anderson came to New York City to make some news of his own. Anderson held a press conference this morning to announce that former Republican Party co-chair Mary Crisp would become his campaign chair. This is the first time in American political history that a woman will be the chairperson of a presidential campaign. Uh, in the new post, which she assumes today, uh, Mary Dent Crisp will assume a broad range of responsibilities in developing and implementing the strategy for the campaign. Crisp resigned her post as Republican Party co-chair last month, and today she blasted the Republican Party for its stand on women's issues. The Republican platform is outrageous. It is offensive to the majority of the American people. The abandonment of a 40-year commitment to the Equal Rights Amendment, the proposal of a constitutional amendment to ban abortion, perhaps even the most frightening proposal is the inference that to be appointed a federal judge requires an anti-abortion position. That's about it for now. We go back up to the press area with Mark and Eileen. States James Earl Carter. This has got to be one of the president's happiest moments in a long time. Since November, the president has been uh, in the hot seat. He's been attacked by Kennedy finally before the Democrats tonight. He's number one. 
Mark, he's been pacing around in that uh, podium area, almost like he's a boxer in a ring and sort of enjoying Thank you very the much. crowd. He's been <laughs> waving from the podium, and here he is about to speak. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Fellow Democrats, fellow citizens, I thank you for the nomination you've offered me. And I especially thank you for choosing as my running mate the best partner any president ever had, Fritz Mondale. With gratitude and with determination, I accept your nomination. And I am proud to run on the progressive and sound platform that you have hammered out at this convention. That would be Carter's last victory. In November, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush will soundly defeat Carter and Walter Mondale. In the year leading up to the 1984 presidential election, the odds looked good for the Democrats to unseat President Reagan. In 1982, during the midterm elections, Democrats won 75% of the governor's races and 60% of the congressional seats. Also in their favor is the nation's high unemployment rate, which had climbed steadily during Reagan's tenure, so much so that in July 1983, Economic data shows the nation's unemployment rate is down to 9.8%, but unemployment among African Americans remains at 20.6%. On September 21, 1983, Reagan's Interior Secretary, James Watt, defends his coal advisory commission makeup by saying, I have a black, I have a woman, two Jews, and a cripple. Immediately, a storm of protest hits Watt, and he resigns his post on October 9th. Nearly a month after his resignation, on the 3rd of November, Jesse Jackson, coming from the opposite spectrum, declares his candidacy for the 1984 Democratic presidential nomination. He speaks of a rainbow coalition of blacks, Hispanics, women, the disabled, and other minorities who he says have been oppressed by the policies of the Reagan administration. In January 1984, Jesse Jackson, traveling as a private citizen, speaks with Syrian President Hafez Assad and obtains the release of U.S. Airman Robert Goodman Jr. Although initially applauded for his effort, it comes back to haunt Jackson later when he's criticized as being a loose cannon and someone who does not play by the rules. After March 13th, or Super Tuesday, the Democratic race is narrowed to two men, former Vice President Walter Mondale, who wins Georgia and Alabama, and Senator Gary Hart, who wins Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Florida. 
By the end of May, Walter Mondale is the clear favorite, having won Illinois, New York, Pennsylvania, Texas, New Jersey, and West Virginia, with only two losses other than that first loss in New Hampshire. Washington, D.C. and Louisiana both go to Jesse Jackson. In July, Mondale, after securing his party's nomination, names Geraldine Ferraro to be his running mate. Thank you, Vice President Mondale. Making Ferraro the first woman to ever appear on a major party ticket. Vice President, it has such a nice ring to it. I want to thank Fritz Mondale for asking the convention to nominate me as his running mate. This choice says a lot about him, about where the country has come, and about where we want to lead it. And on July 17th, Jesse Jackson delivers a passionate speech at the DNC in San Francisco, which, according to Nielsen ratings, had the unusual effect of doubling his listening audience from the time he began his speech to when it ended 50 minutes later. We come together bound by our faith in a mighty God with genuine respect and love for our country and inheriting the legacy of a great party. The Democratic Party, which is the best hope for redirecting our nation on a more humane, just, and peaceful course. This is not a perfect party. We are not a perfect people, yet we are called to a perfect mission. Our mission to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to house the homeless, to teach the illiterate, to provide jobs for the jobless, and to choose the human race over the nuclear race. here this week to nominate a candidate and adopt a platform which will expand, unify, direct, and inspire our party and the nation to fulfill this mission. My constituency is the desperate, the damned, the disinherited, the disrespected, and the despised. They are restless and seek relief. They have voted in record numbers. They have invested the faith, hope, and trust that they have in us. From Fannie Lou Hamer in Atlantic City in 1964 to the Rainbow Coalition in San Francisco today, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, we've experienced pain but progress as we ended America's apartheid laws. We got public accommodations. We secured voting rights. We obtained open housing as young people got the right to vote. We lost Malcolm, Martin, Medgar, Bobby, John, and Viola. The team that got us here must be expanded, not abandoned. Time has come. Suffering breeds character. Character breeds faith. 
Indian faith will not disappoint. Our time has come. Our faith, hopes, and dreams will prevail. Our time has come. Weeping has endured for night, but now joy cometh in the morning. Our time has come. No grave can hold our body down. Our time has come. No lie can live forever. Our time has come. We must leave racial battleground and come to economic common ground and moral higher ground. America, our time has come. We've come from disgrace to amazing grace. Our time has come. Give me your tithe. Give me your poor, your humble masses who yearn to breathe free and come November, there will be a change because our time has come. Thank you, Augustus. Jackson, a man with a split personality. He is sometimes Jesse Jackson, the politician, and at other times, he's Jesse Jackson, the preacher. Tonight, you've got a combination of both. This morning, you've got Jesse Jackson, the preacher. The thing about it is, there are people here, if you can believe this, with tears. I mean, actually crying. And that is something that as long as I have been covering Jesse Jackson's speeches, rallies, his sermons, if you will, I have never before witnessed such an event. I stand here as a reporter trying to remain just that, a reporter, cool, calm, and thoroughly collected. But right now, I am in shambles, if I must say. But I will try to piece myself back together to give you what you would want, to give you what I will, a taste of what the people feel for Jesse Jackson. Just listen to the crowd for a few moments yourself and hear, hear, hear. Pacifica reporter Wendell Harper caught up in the moment. Despite the mood inside the convention hall and Jesse Jackson's prediction of their time has come, Ronald Reagan and George Bush will win the election in November by winning 49 of 50 states and 525 out of 538 electoral votes, thus securing the country four more years of Reaganomics. You are listening to A Passel of Pomp and a Circus of Circumstance, historic convention coverage from the Pacifico Radio Archives. To hear more of the programs in which the clips of this documentary came, or to purchase this program, go to Pacifica Radio Archives' website at www.pacificaradioarchives.org or call 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230. On May 8th, former Colorado Senator Gary Hart more than 20 percentage points ahead of his nearest competitor in the race for the 1988 Democratic presidential nomination, drops out of the race. He had been plagued by rumors of infidelity and womanizing. Earlier in the campaign, he challenged reporters to put a tail on me. Evidently, they did. 
Four days earlier, reporters published photos of Hart with 29-year-old model Donna Rice sitting on his lap aboard the good ship Monkey Business as it sailed for the Bahamas in the Atlantic Ocean. With his exit, Michael Dukakis assumes the frontrunner position. During the month of July 1987, for three weeks, the nation is transfixed, watching Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North testifying before a congressional committee about his role in the Iran-Contra affair. Early in 1988, Michael Dukakis and Vice President George Bush go on a string of primary victories across the country. It is not until March 26 that either of them will fail to win a primary. When in Michigan, the Reverend Jesse Jackson takes the Democratic Party caucus, defeating Dukakis by 55 percent to 28 percent. Jackson quickly becomes Dukakis's toughest competition, and in April, Jackson carries New York City but loses the state to Dukakis. It is not until June that Dukakis wraps up the nomination with wins in California, Montana, New Jersey, and New Mexico. By the time the DNC gets underway in Atlanta, Georgia, on July 20, 1988, Michael Dukakis and his newly announced running mate, Lloyd Benson of Texas, hold a comfortable lead over George Bush, according to the polls. After the convention, the race grows tighter after a series of debates, but shifts dramatically to George Bush's favor after Dukakis's efforts to quell criticisms that he knows nothing of the military include a photo op of Dukakis driving a tank. This is usually the one image most people remember of the entire election. Michael Dukakis's head sticking out of a massive tank, a boyish grin etched across his face. What looked like a cut-and-dried convention with predictable results and predictable speeches turned into something very different in the last 24 hours with the startling announcement from Texas that Ross Perot was abandoning his independent and, in fact, never finally officialized campaign for the presidency. The convention's final session in Madison Square Garden last night was changed completely from what it would have been before by the fact that the delegates and media people and, indeed, everybody else among the 30 or 40,000 people in attendance was mesmerized by speculation on the possibilities of what would or wouldn't happen to Ross Perot's voters. This is Pacifica Radio's coverage. I'm Larry Bensky, National Affairs Correspondent for Pacifica Radio, joined by Samori Marksman of Pacifica Station WBAI here in New York and Tom Porter, Program Director of WPFW, Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C., Bill Clinton's speech was to have been the unimpeded headline highlight, but of course with the speculation about Ross Perot, why he did it and what it now means, he was somewhat overshadowed in the news coverage, but he had his spotlight on national primetime TV anyway. In a speech that was just a little over 50 minutes, Clinton hit many themes. He called for what he said would be a new covenant between the voters in the United States and the Democratic government that he hopes will be installed after the election in November. He talked a great deal about his family and about family values, saying how tired he was of hearing family values from Washington's mouth when they were doing their best to undermine family values. But the part of his speech which received the most enthusiastic reception, as the part of most of the speeches at the convention that received most enthusiastic reception, was just good old-fashioned Bush bashing. Now, George Bush talks a good game, but he has no game plan. 
to rebuild America from the cities to the suburbs to the countryside so that we can compete and win again in the global economy? I do. He won't take on the big insurance companies and the bureaucracies to control health costs and give us affordable health care for all Americans, but I will. He won't even implement the recommendations of his own Commission on AIDS, but I will. He's never balanced a government budget, but I have 11 times. He won't break the stranglehold the special interests have on our elections and the lobbyists have on our government, but I will. He won't give mothers and fathers the simple chance to take some time off from work when a baby is born or a parent is sick, but I will. He's talked a lot about drugs, but he hasn't helped people on the front line to wage that war on drugs and crime, but I will. And you know what else? He doesn't have Al Gore, and I do. Bill Clinton's acceptance speech last night in Madison Square Garden. He also added uh, one further category that George Bush would not support a woman's right to choose, but he would. Clinton went on to narrowly win the election over Vice President George Herbert Walker Bush, the first of his two election victories without winning a majority vote. As the 2000 election neared, discontent with the direction the country was headed reached new levels. The country seemed disinterested in both major party candidates, Vice President Al Gore and Texas Governor George W. Bush. Ralph Nader entered the race as a Green, and Ariana Huffington organized shadow conventions to take place literally in the shadow of the Republican and Democratic National Conventions in Philadelphia and Los Angeles. Well, I look at it myself as uh, the beginning, really, of, a, of an exploration. That's the reason we're exploring. You don't know what you're running into on an exploration, what the sky looks like, what the stars look like. Uh, do they still twinkle, or are they a steady light when you get outside the atmosphere? You're listening to Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! Broadcasting live from downtown Philadelphia, Center City, and the Independent Media Center, where we have been broadcasting all week as we move into the fourth day of the Republican National Convention. I'm Amy Goodman here with Juan Gonzalez. Well, history was made last night at the Republican Convention, and we're not talking about Dick Cheney's speech. 
it was what happened on the convention floor while he spoke. What's believed to be the first time in U.S. history a candidate for president held an impromptu but well-attended press briefing on the convention floor of an opposing party. We're talking about Ralph Nader. In fact, we'd asked him to come to the convention. We wanted him to provide commentary and analysis. The networks think nothing of bringing in opposition Democrats, but these political figures still invariably reinforce the official line. We brought in Ralph Nader as the voice of an outsider who's been excluded from the political process in many ways. But from the moment we arrived, scores of board reporters desperate for a story, as well as delegates and politicians, swarmed around Ralph Nader, the Green Party presidential candidate and well-known consumer advocate, as we began our journey to the convention floor. Are you running for office here, Ralph Mayer? How are you doing? It's all Greenberg is running for Arkansas. How are you? You're going to campaign in Arkansas? You already have yeah, campaigned in Arkansas. Yeah, I was in Arkansas. I've been in all 50 states. Very good. I hear you're very strong in the West. Good luck to you. Yeah, yeah. Happy to hear your message. Well, most people are going to see on in primetime TV on the network coverage. What do you think? What impression are they going to walk away with from the conventions? Are they going to? Are they going to? I mean, by the Republican line, all the diversity and and economically and racially. I think uh, you know most people look at it, political entertainment. A lot of mutual back slapping, a lot of corporate promotion, a lot of hot air politicians. And that's unfortunate because it leads to cynicism when they see someone like Senator John McCain, who stood for political reform in the primary, suddenly morph himself into George W. Bush, a man he thought stood directly contrary to his views on campaign finance reform. That's what leads people to be cynical, to drop out, not to vote. And we're trying to bring them back into the political process with a new green political party and our candidacy. Theo, we're from New Jersey, and you're going to lose big time. Hey, wait a minute. You wouldn't want that, would you? We would love it. We would want it with a passion. What party do you think I represent? You represent the party of your own twisted ideas, my friend. I just think the little guy is the one at the disadvantage as far as bringing a, uh, a lawsuit. The corporate and the, and the large companies do have the advantage of large dollars to fund lawsuits to defeat legitimate claims. Rupnader, what about George Bush's approach to tort reform? Well, he is a, contrary to this delegate, state senator from New York. He wants to make it more difficult and erect more barriers for wrongfully injured Americans to have their full day in court against the companies whose dangerous or defective products harm them. And I think that's one of the few differences between the Republicans and the Democrats. Well, I want to observe the thing in action. It's, it's hard to believe when you see it reported. You have to see it to believe it. I mean, this is the most spectacular display of political cash register uh, politics with corporate uh, fat cats in the history of the country. And it's always good to see the state of the art shamelessly paraded on national TV. What's your message to the delegates here? My message is to go home and rethink what they're doing to the country when they sell politics to corporate fat cats in return for political favors. And that's what I say to the Democrats as well. Our democracy is being hijacked by large commercial interests against the interests of everyday people. And we've got to have political reform in this country. I'm very sorry to see John McCain, who had millions of supporters standing for political reform, morph himself into George W. Bush today.
You can't spoil a political system that's spoiled to the core. We need a new political reform movement in this country. It's not going to come from the Democratic or Republican parties. What about the political debates, uh, Ralph Nader? Are you going to be included in them? What are you going to do about that? Public opinion is burgeoning in favor of a four-way debate with me, Buchanan, Bush, and Gore. I think that's what the American people want. They want more choice. They want exciting debates. They don't want to fall asleep in front of the TV set, watching the drab debate the dreary. Ralph Nader speaking on the floor of the Republican National Convention. While the scripted tradition of pomp and circumstance went on inside the party conventions, Ariana Huffington succeeded in getting enormously diverse speakers from different party affiliations and with different interests, but all of whom shared one interest of returning this country to true democratic practice. Welcome to Shadow Convention in Los Angeles, the second part of a bicostal, bipartisan, by the people doubleheader. Everybody is welcome here. In fact, nobody needs to pay a $100,000 access fee to get here. And that's our main difference from the other conventions. The Philadelphia shadow was a big hit. And to borrow one phrase that's going to be used a lot during the DNC convention, you ain't seen nothing yet. Although the major press outlets in the country largely avoided coverage of the shadow convention, Pacifica gave exclusive live coverage throughout. In the spirit of the shadow conventions, the late Senator Paul Wellstone gave an energizing, exciting speech to those present in Los Angeles. Senator Wellstone, who would die in a plane crash along with his wife, daughter, and several members of his staff just over a year later during his tough fight for re-election, spoke about the issues he fought so tirelessly for and which set him apart from his colleagues. Here is that speech, set to music and remixed by DJ Sprinkles. This is most of my adult life as a teacher and writer and community organizer, and now United States Senator. My wife, Sheila, is here somewhere. Sheila, this combines the focus on reform, getting the big money out of politics, and bringing people back into politics with the economic justice issues. How can it be? 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 With record economic performance, performance, record low levels of unemployment, unemployment, that Republicans and too many Democrats, and too many Democrats, still tell us we can't afford to provide a good education for every child. We can't have health security for every citizen and that we should tolerate a set of social arrangements that allow children to be the most poverty-stricken people in the United States of America. If you want real welfare reform, focus on a good education, good health care, and a good job. If you want to reduce poverty, focus on a good education, good health care, and a good job. If you want to have a stable middle class, Focus on a good education, good health care, good job. And a good job. If you want a country, we're here because we love our country. To do well in an international economy, focus on a good education, good health care, and a good job. The truth of the matter is this. We ought to shout this truth from the mountaintop. We can build a million new prisons. 
We will fill them all up. We will never stop this cycle of violence unless we invest in the health and the skills and the intellect and the character of our children. Focus on a good education. Focus on a good health care. Focus on a good job. That's why we're here at the Set on the One of the more publicized events during the convention in Los Angeles was on the third night when the political rock band Rage Against the Machine played outside the Staples Center. Once the band was finished with its set, the police moved in, attacking the concertgoers. Here is Ariana Huffington speaking to those present at Patriotic Hall the next morning. If the police had just concentrated on the few vandals and troublemakers, rather than treating everybody, including children and reporters, as dangerous people to be controlled and brought down, yesterday would have been a very different day. And it's the mindset that divides America into two. You know, President Clinton talked yesterday about us being one America. But you know what? That's just empty rhetoric. The reality is... that the police, yes, it demonstrated that we are divided into two nations, one inside the Staples Center to be protected at all costs, and then everybody else outside to be controlled and feared. If this country is only divided in two, we're not as bad as we could be. Throughout our history, our country has been divided in many ways and along many lines. Cornell West, the famed professor from Harvard for many years, now at Princeton, spoke about this country and its history and how to proceed. Forty years ago, Martin King marched the Democratic Convention trying to get a better civil rights platform. Four years later, he was on the inside and Fannie Lou Hamer was on the outside. Martin Luther King Jr. admitted that he had been absorbed, incorporated. There's too many liberal, progressive, black, red, yellow, brown leaders on the inside who are in the process of being incorporated to such a degree that they're losing sight and focus on precisely the voices that we've heard in East Los Angeles. If you know that I supported my dear friend and brother Bill Bradley, as did Paul Wellstone. And we had a good time. And I love him dearly. But I'm an independent. And I'm a free black man. I speak my mind, heart, and soul. And that's why I'm for Brother Ralph. Yeah. 
Not because he's a perfect candidate. No candidate is perfect. But me on, for me on personal grounds, I reached a point where working people and poor people are so disregarded and disrespected by a corporate-dominated Democratic Party that you have to begin a new cycle somewhere with somebody. And this broadens the discourse and broadens the engagement, and maybe we can see a little leftward leaning in the Democratic Party. We shall see. We shall see. But in the end, this is all about reinvigorating and regenerating the democratic tradition here and around the world. It's about acknowledging that even though we will experience moments of relative defeat, that we know the world is incomplete and that history is unfinished, that what we do and what we think individually and collectively does make a difference. Let us not lose heart. Let us keep our heads to the sky and our hands on the plow. Let us keep our eyes on the prize. Shadow Convention, you are making a contribution, and we shall see the fruits of our labor down through the corridors of time, hoping, in fact, that the oligarchs will begin to tremble in their boots and either make the concessions or, as Louis Brandeis said so very well, you can have concentration of wealth in the hands of the few or democracy, but you cannot have both. And he's right. Thank you. Although the shadow conventions were organized as nonprofits and as a result unable to come out in support of any candidates, speakers like Cornell West endorsed Nader, Jesse Jackson Jr. endorsed Gore, and John McCain endorsed George W. Bush. The shadow conventions concentrated on different topics each day, ranging from the failed war on drugs to campaign finance reform. Here's Granny D, the grandmother of 12, who walked across the United States in order to get people to register to vote, speaking about the country's great struggle. The great struggle of the 21st century is underway. All things of human and natural scale, democracy, individual freedom, the healthy earth itself, now is in a struggle for survival against oversized public and private institutions that threaten the position of the individual and the health of the earth through the relentless, rapacious march of unregulated, unprincipled greed. Greed powerful enough to have purchased away from us our political leaders and their parties. But the people do not go quietly. Granny D also attended the Shadow Convention in Philadelphia and spoke to those in attendance in Los Angeles about Philadelphia's Mayor Rendell, who arrested protesters at the Republican National Convention and some who, at the time of the DNC, were still in jail with $500,000 bails. Mr. Rendell's chief of police suggests 
that Americans who peacefully assembled to petition their government for a redress of grievances should be investigated and hunted down across the nation as conspirators. Well, please come and get me. Pacifica Radio has grown so much in the last 55 years. This year, as we move toward the conventions in Boston and New York City, Pacifica again will be covering them as only Pacifica can. Not only the two major parties will be held under the Pacifica microscope, but the Hip Hop Convention, the Green Convention, and the Unity Convention, too. Stay tuned to Pacifica through this election season in order to gain the tools needed to become more informed members of this democracy. Or, in the words of Cornell West, And the question is whether you're going to give up, whether you're going to give in, whether you're going to sell out or whether you're going to fight back. And we decide we are going to fight back and take back American democracy. You're listening to A Passel of Pomp and a Circus of Circumstance, historic convention coverage from the Pacifica Radio Archives. This program was executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and Brian DeShazer, produced and edited by Christopher Sprinkle, written by Christopher Sprinkle and Mike O'Dell, technical direction by Mark Torres. Pacifica producers who throughout the years produced the audio used in this documentary include Mike O'Dell, Elsa Knight-Thompson, Bill Watson, Gavin Duffy, Mad Dog Lubowski, Charles Bell, Jim Berlin, Kevin Stern, Amy Goodman, Jeremy Scahill, Larry Bensky, Samori Marksman, Tom Porter, Wendell Harper, and numerous other anonymous producers from Pacifica stations KPFA Berkeley, KPFK Los Angeles, WBAI New York, WPFW Washington, D.C., and KPFT Houston. The music heard throughout this documentary was performed by Longwave, the Nortec Collective, Sigur Ross, Lisa Gerard and Peter Bork, Faithless, Lowe, Bernard Herrmann, In Excess, Three Mile Pilot, The Karminsky Experience, Kruder and Dorfmeister, The Postal Service, Tosca, Pinback, Jan Tiersen, and Zero Seven. To hear more of the programs in which the clips of this documentary came, or to purchase this program, go to the Pacifica Radio Archives website at www.pacificaradioarchives.org or call 1-800-735-0230. That's 1-800-735-0230. This program is dedicated to the late KPFK producer, Mike Hodell. This has been a production of the Pacifica Radio Archives. I'm Amy Goodman.